Welcome to the Inside Sales Enablement Podcast. Where has the profession been? Where is it now? And where is it heading? What does it mean to you, your company, other functions, the market? Find out here. Join the founding father of the sales enablement profession, Scott Santucci, and trailblazer Brian Lambert as they take you behind the scenes of the birth of an industry. The Inside Sales Enablement Podcast starts now. I'm Scott Santucci. I'm Brian Lambert, and we are the Sales Enablement Insiders. Our podcast is for sales enablement leaders looking to elevate their function, expand their sphere of influence, and increase the span of control within their companies. Together, Brian and I have worked on over 100 different kinds of sales enablement initiatives as analyst consultants or practitioners. We've learned the hard way what works and maybe what's more important, what doesn't. That's great. I guess it's been really hard lately. (laughs) Scott, so take us up with a uh, centering story. We're bringing back our centering stories. We've had a couple of podcasts and panel discussions and our, our uh, listeners are clamoring for a story, Scott. I think it's time to go back in history. I can feel it. What do you got for us? Well, this time we're going to have to go way back, the way back machine. And I'd like us to imagine what the year 1271 was like. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Good times, right? <laughs> uh, this is pre-plague Europe, by the way. Um, so good, you know, good stuff. In 1271, a 17-year-old left Venice uh, with his father to go off to, uh, to China. And who, who was that person? Well, that's what people today know as Marco Polo. And Marco Polo is not famous for that pool game. Marco. Uh, Polo. That's, that's not what he's about. That's not what he's famous for. He, he's actually famous for his time spent in China. So we have to remind ourselves that in Europe, during twelve, you know, twelve seventy one, right when when our when our story is set, the largest cities in Europe had about twenty thousand to forty thousand people. That was considered a huge city in uh, European standards. And the big thing that was emerging here was the mercantile system, so trade, and the Venetians were probably the biggest innovators of that. So they, if you know about Venice, it's this little island. Uh, They have great shipbuilding. So they sail all over to establish trade routes. And one of the things, of course, you want to establish is trade with China because China has, uh, has silk. Between 1271 and 1295, he spent a lot of time in China. And what makes him particularly important is that he caught the attention of Kublai Khan and Kublai Khan was basically the emperor of China at that time. Um, And Kublai Khan somehow got impressed by young Marco Polo. So impressed. He was impressed by, he was, he thought he was witty. Um, He was impressed by his humility and his curiosity. And what's in, he was so fascinating about this is Kublai Khan basically gave Marco Polo this emperor's pass into all all of China, he could go anywhere, and uh, with a with a military support behind him, and he could do whatever he wanted. Um, he, Kublai Khan was so impressed by Marco Polo. Khan, uh, he represented China as an ambassador to India, 
and Burma. So what, because of who he was, because of his intellect and because of his curiosity, he captured a lot of stories. When he got back in 1295, he got back to, eventually got back to Venice and Venice was at a war with Genoa. So we've got to keep in mind during this period of time, these were city states, right? So Genoa is where Christopher Columbus is from, by the way, um, is a city just, you know, on the other side of the peninsula uh, of Italy and they were at war. And within a year of coming back home after being gone for 25 years, he gets captured by the Genoese. And so while he was in prison, he wrote uh, about his, his stories. And his stories were so impactful because they, tell, they, told, they told stories about and accounts of how Chinese cities were, had running water and sanitation. They had over a million people in many, many of the cities, which was incomprehensible for anybody in, in Western civilization to understand. But the accuracy and the, um, the depictions made people become curious. Uh, they're the economy that uh, China had. They were the first people to go to a paper currency or a fiat currency, as economists call it. And uh, a lot of those principles, the the Venetian used behind their former currency, which is the ducat, which became the standard uh, for many, many years before it was replaced for the the florin. And another interesting thing about that is uh, Marco Polo's influences. A lot of us associate pasta with Italian cuisine, but they actually got that from the Chinese. So that's, that's, my, uh, that's my centering story is okay. go off to foreign lands, get some, get, get some different information, put things together, come back. And uh, if, if you're really curious and positioning it a, a different way, you can start laying the seeds for, say, maybe a reson- renaissance. Oh, nice. So this is very exciting. Not only have I learned where pasta really came from, we're also going to get to use our new sound effect that we recorded with our panel, Scott, and that's the So what? Does this have to do with sales enablement? Well, that's a good question, Brian. And taking a big step back, we can focus in, as sales enablement professionals on the daily tactics and what we do and what our jobs are. Or we can take a step back and look at the overall patterns. And one of the overall patterns is uh, we're responsible for change. Uh, we're responsible for finding new ways of doing things. We're fo- responsible for getting a lot of other people together. We're responsible for orchestrating a lot of people. And the reason I like this story is it highlights how big some of the gaps are between different worlds. So let me elaborate on that a little bit. So we talked a little bit uh, about Kublai Khan, and I don't expect everybody to know um, middle-age <laughs> Chinese history, uh, but co- what what's how you might recognize that name, Kublai Khan, he's the grandson of somebody called Genghis Khan. And Genghis Khan, just two generations ahead, led a massive slaughterhouse, one of the most ruthless uh, and effective leaders of, of all time. And he threatened much of Europe. As a matter of fact, uh, he threatened a lot of the uh, elements of the, of the Roman Empire, the, the Byzantine side. And um, it created a lot, a lot, a lot of problems. So you have this um, overall fear or belief that um, these Mongols, all, uh, all in Western Europe, have a shared view that the Mongols are this horde, uh, this barbaric horde 
of people ride on horseback without, um, you know, holding their meat together between their legs to, and that, that, and they ate that raw meat, but they were seasoning it. Uh, it's just so repulsive. Uh, and that's what the Western culture thought. Here, Marco comes back. Marco Polo comes back and he's telling all these stories about Kublai Khan, whom everybody knows is the grandson of Genghis Khan and this massive civilization that he's got going on in this thriving economy. So it's, it's this huge shift of, you know, not only is the idea of a million uh, of a, a city with a population of a million people hard to understand or uh, paying things with paper, just completely hard to understand. Um, so this was he. So people actually people actually knew that Asia existed, and they've course. heard of him, but they've just, just like never they knew been then there. That the old Earth was round too. That was right. also known. Mm-hmm. They just had um, never been there. So when he starts bringing back details, that's the well. Pete, they knew a lot, right? So they knew about um, you know the riches, the spices, the silk. They they knew all of those things. What happened is. During Kublai Khan's reign, he modernized a lot of things. So he built a whole new dynasty. Uh, uh, and it's the modernization of all of these things and the thrive, uh, you know, the, the period of thriveness and um, prosperity that was happening in China is just really hard to comprehend. Gotcha. Not only are the results hard to comprehend, but the fact that this is the grandson of, of, Genghis Khan remember in Europe at that time you were born in and your last name was Miller because that's what you did you were a Miller or mm-hmm. Hooper you you made uh you made barrels your name was what you did and what you did was who you were and here you've got uh what was the name Khan means conquer right so you think he's a conqueror and it just you, you can't imagine um something different so it's this 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 creating the space to be able to comprehend it, it was so, um, the resistance to Marco Polo's story was so hard. You can even go into Venice today and they have a, a section, I don't know the exact Italian, but they called him a braggart. And the, the priest at the time, when he was on his deathbed, they were still trying to get him to confess, come on, Marco, you admit it. You were come making on, that stuff up to be famous. And he wouldn't admit it. He's like, frankly, I left half the stories of the things I saw out of here because I didn't think you guys would believe them. You guys are making up words. Yeah. You're making up words, man. Making up concepts. So (laughs) why does this matter? Why is framing this matter so much? Well, it it matters because where we are today in our businesses, we're going through a similar revolution. Um, We want to apply digital and we think we know what digital means, just like uh, the Western civilization thought they knew who Genghis Khan was. But digital is much more like Kublai Khan. <laughs> it's, it's a completely different viewpoint than what we think it is. And all of this stuff creates so much friction, how, how our businesses are changing. So it creates space, just like there was massive distance. There's geographic distance between Western Europe and, and China. Uh, there was cultural space. There's um, philosophical space. There's understanding space, cultural space. Mm -hmm. So let's look at where we are today. We have uh, growing space between your company and your customers. We have space between the the growth plans coming from management 
and all of the activities that people know for sure of what needs to be done to drive quarter results. We have space between um, people who think about accomplishing goals and then people who think about driving daily activities and doing tasks and getting stuff done. So we even have space between how, how we actually go about working. <laughs> we have space between the sophistication of know-how of subject matter experts and then space between other people who say, hey, we have to simplify this for action and take uh, a little bit of all of these different parts and stream it together. We can't even agree on that. We have space between managing individual co uh, co contribution and saying, hey, I as an employee am valued because of the these are my contributions. Yet at the other end, customers don't really care about individual contributions. They care about their experience. And what does that look like? So we have space between that. And then we have space among all of the specialized functional departments. So that's how, how we tie it all together. And because the way that we're structured, just like the way Western civilization was structured in terms of their thinking, their culture, et cetera, made it very difficult for, um, for Europe to buy in. It took really a plague uh, to get people in a more coachable moment. Uh, we're in a very, very similar spot today. So that's, that's why that story is relevant. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's interesting because the more you dwell in the space there, uh, the more the space becomes real. Uh, and, and so Marco Polo dwelled in the space and he came back with stories and people thought he was crazy and he was bragging. And the space, though, actually has definition. People occupy space, activities ac occupy space, thinking, structures, processes. There's a lot of stuff in the space. So it's a paradox between there's nothing there, nothing to see here, move on. And boy, there's a lot of uh, things happening there. And I love this concept for the podcast today. Let's let's dwell on the space, right? And to help with that, I'm bringing in and we're bringing in Doug Clower, who's uh, one of our orchestrator uh, friends. And he's also been a listener of the Inside Sales Enablement podcast. So he's a, he's a member of the Insider Nation. Hi, Doug, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Brian. And thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. And what do you think, Doug? Uh, I'd love to hear your reaction to the Marco Polo framing story, and then how that relates to, to your thinking, and then just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, you know, right up, right up front, the Marco Polo story is so compelling because it talks about us living in a world um, that we perceive, but then looking at a different world and seeing it's so much different and understanding what the um, the differences are between the two sides. It's just, wow, the exploration that he went through, the, the mind-blowing experience that uh, he had to have had at the time, it was certainly eye-opening and something he was able to bring back uh, to the Western civilization, even though, as you described, Scott, they didn't believe it. And he didn't tell them everything because he didn't think they would. So it, it's important for us to remember that we sometimes have to put ourselves in the other person's shoes, think about what they see, et cetera. So it's kind of an important thing. Um, these webcasts, these uh, have been so helpful for me in terms of evolving some of the things I think about helping me put my feet in the other person's shoes, putting my, uh, my feet in the shoes of, say, the canals of the world who, uh, from a, a private equity standpoint, what do they see? What are they looking for? 
thinking about other things that have been happening. So it's really important. My background is, is uh, in a consulting type of uh, side of the house. I started off as an architect, uh, which is sort of a consultative selling kind of thing. I transitioned into IT and was managing uh, the sales of products for a uh, small business, a small uh, partner, and then evolved over the time into an enablement uh, role, which was um, so exciting because it was a new territory, a new venture. And, and uh, so my background is really in um, in sales excellence. Uh, and, and that's really what I'm passionate about. I, I sort of tag myself these days as an enablement guru. Uh, I have now started tagging myself as an orchestrator and uh, I continue to expect to do that. So awesome. Thanks. Yeah. And um, this idea of uh, orchestrator, let's, let's talk about uh, with Scott and, and it's really have a conversation here in the space that orchestrator comes from. So this space that, that exists, I'd love to explore it a little bit and let's have a conversation, Doug, and I'll start with you. When you went through, as you alluded to the webinars and, and I know you've listened to the show uh, let's let's go back a little bit into the first webinar, second webinar that uh, Scott did, which was the state of sales enablement. And it, in that that webinar was the landscape of sales enablement and how it's evolving. And it was really grounded in the research that was happening in in that in that time. It was about I guess two months ago now. And what what can you share with regard to? you know, your story and how it's unfolded over the last couple of months. And let's use that, that webinar as, and also these other touch points you've had as a way to, to get our listeners up to speed on what's been happening. I, I, you know, what I'll tell you was most enlightening about this. And uh, another example of me putting my shoes in, in somebody else's, uh, my feet in somebody else's shoes. I don't want to put my shoes on anyone else. <laughs> I, they wouldn't like them. Uh, anyway, uh, the important thing is when I first went through the research and started looking at things, I, I think my, my visceral reaction initially was that our sales enablement resources, the people that were responding are way too tactically oriented. And I, I, I just, in my mind, I felt like sales enablement as a practice needed to be more strategic, et cetera. So I, I immediately just sort of pulled back from that, but, as I started to think through that and started listening to other things and being challenged by different um, stories and different points of view about this, I started recognizing how strategy and tactics have to be married in a way. You know, I, I always said that tactics, yeah, we have to do that. There's no doubt about it. But oftentimes, uh, just like uh, a recent book that, um, uh, uh, not a recent book, but a, a book that I've recently uh, been reviewing or, or re-reading, it really talks about the fact that there's got to be marriage, there's got to be an execution toward uh, the strategy. You can't just say, I've got a strategy and make it happen. So this concept of stratocution, which is a term that first came up uh, back then, was so important, especially how it applies to thinking about enablement as a practice and evolving and moving forward toward uh, the business within a business concept that uh, Scott and you have, have all begun to share with the rest of us. So it's really insightful and it's helpful. It's helped me transition to think, you know, I have to think of it 
in total. I can't, I can't break the two apart or dismiss one side or the other. Yeah, that's great. So let's use our Marco Polo analogy here. Uh, let's say you're in the, uh, uh, you're in Europe and Scott's Marco Polo and he's went o- he went over there and he, he, uh, he taught, he went through Asia and he, he's bringing back all these stories about, uh, in this case, in the modern era, the digital transformation, uh, the impact of digital, the impact of COVID, the gaps that exist between customers and companies, even though, um, you know, people may, may agree or disagree, but he's seen it and he's seen the uh, alignment of product or not. He's seen the, the company's executives wrestling with things like commercial ratio and talking about it and making decisions about who stays and who goes. He's seen these uh, conversations unfold with uh, venture capitalists, as we've been talking about for the last two months on our on the webinars and the podcast. He's seen the gaps that exist between people's perspectives, um, whether they're product marketing, training, uh, et cetera, and, and this concept and challenge of actually having the same words have different meanings. He's seen these things. And he comes back and says uh, on the webinar, there's this gap between uh, strategy and tactics that exists and, um, you know, you're saying that that made a lot of sense, Marco Polo, right? Is that, is yep. that what you're saying? Yeah. In fact, uh, I, I could have taken one of two approaches. I could have either been somebody that was looking for the opportunity to learn about all that he had heard, or I could be a priest and say, oh, you're lying. Those stories could not be truthful. There's no chance. And I think, Scott, you've experienced a lot of pushback on some of the information you've shared at at different times. But I I, got to tell you, I think the most important thing is Scott has, has done research. He's been there, he's visited, and we can learn from that and we can learn from each other. So it's, it's important for us to, to keep an open mind and continue to, uh, to learn. Yeah. So let's, you've got a lot of experience, I think, Doug, and well, I know in, in your background, what, why is this concept to you worth learning about or exploring further? Do you have any examples of, of where you've had to exist in this space between strategy and tactics or how do we breathe life into this right now? It, it could be to our, our listeners, you know, stratocution, ha ha ha. That's a made up word. Uh, now we're saying Marco Polo's bringing Scott's bringing some stuff back here and, and it's making you think, and it's also illuminating some things that you might've been doing. How do we make this more concrete for our listeners? Well, I, I, probably the best one that uh, best example of of a real life uh, circumstance in uh, in my most recent um, uh, organization, we had acquired a, a rather large uh, software company, and in the process, we were bringing on a lot of new salespeople, and there was some challenge or concern because um, there was no formalized onboarding that integrated the entire side of you know everything. So in in the process of the churn that was happening as a result of that merger, um, the CEO basically said, I need people to get up to quota, our sales resources to get up to quota faster. And I need some idea about how to do that. Um, And as a result, a team of us began to investigate and understand what was missing, what the gaps were, uh, things that needed to uh, be discussed, pulled from all of the enabling resources, what were the recommendations, we put together a plan to execute against that strategy, and we built an onboarding program. 
And the onboarding program went from uh, a salesperson might come on board and not really understand what they're doing for six months pre the onboarding program, all the way to the, by, by the time we were, had implemented and, and adjusted and modified as we were going along. But as we'd implemented that program, it was, we were actually seeing people up to quota targets within uh, a 45 day to 90 day window uh, and people coming out with great deal. So the idea here is that we had a strategy that had been articulated by senior leadership and the tactics that we needed to do to accomplish that were very specific and we learned even as we were rolling it out how to modify it. But the middle ground was the objective was I want people to quota faster. I want them to be more successful. And we have, I'm going to call it anecdotal, but we have quotes from numerous people that have been through the program, how much more comfortable they felt being able to have conversations with customers and solving their problems after the fact. That's a real life um, example of stratocution. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing here is um, this understanding of what the outcome is or the goal. Uh, and, you know, you stated that as um, driving and, and decreasing time to productivity, right? Yes. That's what you, and so when you drop the goal on the table, as I say, let's, you know, the executives have this um, uh, reason and, and I would, you know, there's some discussions that happen that somebody says we need to drive, you know, decrease our time to productivity. So there's this idea of where did this outcome come from? And then there's discussions around how do, how do we figure that out? And, and I think our industry is pretty wired to, well, you said onboarding. So therefore here's the answer. And I've done that too. So I, I don't, I don't want to minimize all the work that happens in the, um, the tactics piece, but I want to push that off the table for a second because I think our, our folks and, and my, you know, the people that I've talked to have a lot of ideas on how to uh, execute tactically. But, but um, what I'd like to do is Scott toss it to you or talk to you a little bit about what Doug's saying here, because to me, what I've seen in my own experience is that we don't have a lot of patience to talk through what the strategic uh, aspects or pillars might be, where the outcome or the, the ask has actually come from, how that relates to the, the bigger picture, and, and then um, the appetite to actually talk these things through in order to guide the tactics and tie those tactics together. We, we don't seem to have a lot of patience for that in our current European view of, of the world. And I just wonder, you know, with your Marco Polo lens, how does that play out? Do you see that? And is that an example here of, of this gap between strategy and tactics, or do we need to get more specific? Yeah, so let, let's use Doug's example as a simple simple case. Um, thinking strategy, hey, we're a big company, and we're going to go acquire another big company. And, um, you know, based on that strategy, it looks pretty good because we're going to be able to cross-sell and all those other things. That's all strategic, so you don't think about tactical execution. Mm-hmm. So then when it doesn't work, what happens is now the the CEO is involved in saying, hey, how come you guys didn't think through the execution? And he wants uh, the onboarding program, you know, to bring these two groups together. This is an onboarding program of new hires. This is a merger and acquisition onboarding program. It's very different than how other people might be thinking about it. 
and now he's involved in, in, in prescribing tactics. And I got to tell you, knowing, uh, knowing, I don't know this CEO really that well, but I know other CEOs that tell me they're so frustrated with having to prescribe tactics. They don't like it. It's, they don't think it's their expertise, but how come somebody didn't anticipate that we're going to need to merge these two groups together? So the gap between Stratocution left it to where nobody inside the company, in Doug's company before, really concentrated on doing it. And then you're in a reactive state of building an onboarding program. Um, that's why people don't think that they have any time to be strategic. But you should be able to anticipate this. How in the world is it not likely that you're not going to get a sales organization or sales organizations from multiple groups together and not realize that you're going to have challenges executing? How is that not a knowable thing? And let's let's uh, let's pattern these out. So, for example, if you if you're saying that, how is that not a knowable thing? You know, I would say things like, um, okay, fine, I'll play your game. Uh, we're going to have content challenges. We're going to have definitional challenges. We're going to have process challenges. We're going to have um, de- you know, product um, description, messaging, content challenges. We're going to have management philosophy gaps, right? Is that the stuff you're talking about when you say you don't anticipate the challenges or is it something else? It's, it's all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it, it's working backwards from how are we going to hit the numbers and what stands in the way? It's really that simple. Mm-hmm. For whatever think, reason, the simple questions we don't ask. So that's really the yeah you know, that's really the gap between stratification. What's frustrating, I think, is that other departments, you know, other functions have learned how to do this. I'll give you an example. Uh, an example is Citibank. There for a while was doing lots and lots of acquisitions. The IT organization at Citibank knows how to uh, incorporate a data center. So what they do is that, you know, once there's an acquisition, what do they do first? They wall off the data center of the old one and just map out their processes. And then they replace them. Um, They have to do it because the the, the IT department is a pure cost center. And um, because it's in the GNA category, it, it gets a lot of focus. So they concentrate on squeezing those things out, but they can't afford any disruption to business service because if you can imagine ATMs not working, what a uh, horrifying activity that would be. So why is it that, so what happens is if, if a CIO can talk about that and manage all of these complex technologies, why in the world can't my commercial organization do that? And that creates just so much annoyance uh, among the executive leadership. And does that look like we're not anticipating these real life things, which to a CEO have to be way easier than the technical architecture. How come you're not thinking that way? Yeah. Uh, so Doug, so Doug, I'm, I'm, I've got this picture in my head of the CEO going through during this merger acquisition. And here's, here's the IT roadmap, the IT plan. Here's all the details in our process and our procedures we're going to run. Here's how structured we are. Okay. Commercial organization, you know, what are they going to be talking about? Do they even have a plan Do, or is it just tactics, right? Is it, is it uh, structured and easy for the executive team to digest or is it organic and a little bit more seat of your pants compared to the IT conversation? We'll never know. But this concept here is important, I think, to dive into even further. And Doug, I'd love your take on what Scott's saying. You know, how did this play out 
do these, does this make sense from a, let's look at the outcome and ask this very simple question. And then it, from there, how do you bring these together in strategies and tactics? It feels like deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. It, it's like the, the most interesting thing about this uh, is that um, the gaps were so wide uh, that it was amazing like to what? see all, all the breaks in, down. Well, it was down to the point where a, a new hire might come on board, but because of the disconnect between our uh, uh, equipment acquisition program and, and approved platforms, they might not see a notebook for three weeks. They mm -hmm. might not have a working environment. They might not even get a phone to be able to call somebody if they're a remote resource for whatever. Mm -hmm. So they were on their own. Uh, that's just one example. They couldn't fulfill um, their benefits thing. It was more systemic than it was just on the commercial side. So you start looking at the businesses within a business kind of approach and you think commercial enablement, you know, how do we do that? But it was organizational. It was, um, it, it was talent. It was all of the things that are out there that you, this is why somebody thinking big picture is so important exactly what he described. Some things are predictable, some are not. And somebody has to be thinking bigger picture than that. It's just, yeah. it's just, that reminds me of the story of, uh, you know, we're going to onboard and we're going to have people in, in, and when you say onboarding reps, oftentimes people think about, Hey, they're just going to end up in the classroom. But if you look at all the steps, like you're talking about, Doug, and actually if we use the data center example, say, what's our processes for onboarding? Um, in the data center example is they isolate it and they map out all those processes. It's, it's, it's assumed that there are processes. It's a known fact. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when you say, what are the processes for onboarding in the, in the commercial space or the sales and marketing space? Uh, it becomes a, uh, what do you mean? And I don't have, what do you mean? Well, uh, who's doing what with the talent acquisition? Who's doing what with the recs? What's the role of business planning? What's the role of the hiring manager? What's the role of the approver of the hiring manager? What's the role of the a candidate himself in the hiring process? And then, oh, by the way, on day one, what happens? And then when does onboarding start and where does it end? These conversations that, that we're starting to allude to here, are the, these feel like they're in the gap of this stratocution discussion. Would you, would you agree, Scott? And Doug? Yeah, I, 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 we've used onboarding a lot. I want to talk about some other examples just so that, you know, more people. Yeah, absolutely. With it. Uh, here's an example. Hey, we're going to implement Challenger. And we're going to do Challenger because we want to, uh, <laughs> we want to sell um, more of our portfolio higher in the organization. Great. Um, let's go do that. Yeah. So what happens? You, you spend an inordinate amount of money on Challenger and, I, you know, whether it's good or bad is, is, is sort of irrelevant, but you do go and deliver a commercial ratio or a commercial commercial ratio, a, a commercial insight. Um, and uh, now what? What happens after that? Have you equipped the salesperson to help guide the champion internally to do the evaluation? Nope. Have the other people that they need to bring in been brought in, brought to bear? Nope. Have the messages been organized that way? Nope. So, to, so just so, these are the kinds of things that people don't think through. They think suddenly that we're going to wave a, a wand uh, or sprinkle pixie dust 
on the sales organization and suddenly we're going to be blooming, you know, account uh, and, uh, you know, big account deals. And we believe it because we spent a lot of money on something. None of these things work. It's like, uh, it's like potions or magic. So it's so barbaric. How, do, how does this relate to Marco Polo then? Let's tie it uh, back to that. So tying it back to, to, to Marco Polo, if, if you think about, um, hey, let's implement sanitation. So there wasn't even words for sanitation then, <laughs> right. right? So how do you say, look, this filth that we have in our streets that are causing lots of people to have disease and die is bad. What's the answer? In Marco Polo, it's like, well, that's why we have the planks that we walk on. That's why we wear boots with high heels. What are you talking about? Right. But we're going to have systemic sanitation to remove the waste. Right. What are you, what are you even talking about? Why so we do uh, that? Or, or, or it just even the acceptance of any of those ideas. So, um, you know, fortunately or not fortunately for Western civilization, Western culture, we had the plague wipe out a lot of people, which created a lot of doubt in the, um, preachings of the church in, in the 1300s and it created uh, some space for for openness and new ideas and a lot of people uh trace back the origins of the renaissance to um the plague and the, just the massive death that caused people to look at things differently yeah and, and we i think it, we're not really a people that like uh and, and can accept new ways of thinking and or tackle what really would be considered systemic challenges. So I've had a lot of conversations with folks say, look, I got to focus on my circle of concern and my circle of influence, or I can only control what I can control. And it's not my job, basically. Um, But both of these examples here, whether it's onboarding or data center, so that's two, third one of sanitation, fourth one challenger, these these are broader um, ecosystem challenges that need to be addressed. And well, let, uh, let, let's let's talk about sur- sphere of influence, or sur- you know, uh, that's not my job. You know, that that sort of thing. Sales enabling is a new role, and think about what human nature is. Human nature is somebody's going to get blamed for a problem, and if you're not actually out fighting the root cause problem, you're going to get blamed. I have seen so many people. Uh, in a sales enablement role, get their head cut off, so to speak, you know, go tie it back to, you know, Western civilization, but uh, in, in the in the Middle Ages, but even now, um, blamed for failures. How many sales leaders uh, or sales enablement leaders, who's, who's going to get fired if we don't get the traction that we did when we hired Challenger in? The sales enablement leader or the sales training group that implemented it. Who's going to get fired? Is it going to be the head of sales or the CMO or is it going to be the sales enablement person that rolled out the, uh, you know, the seismic or high spot or uh, show pad system that they spent millions of dollars and that didn't work? Who's going to get fired when it doesn't get work? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's going to be uh, whoever the sales enablement resource was that was responsible for executing and implementing the program. That's right. So to say that it's not my job is putting yourself already backed in a corner because there's other variables that go into the execution. And if the other people don't realize that they're contributing to say the filth in this, in in the streets or something like that, uh, they're going to blame you. So if you're the, if you're the sanitation, the new uh, sanitation person, Doug in uh, in Venice, 
And uh, you say it's not my job to raise awareness that people can't just dump their filth into the street. What are you going to do? You're just going to keep putting planks up, but people are going to still complain. Did we hire Doug to clean up this filth and this, this mess and this smell? Um, and he's telling us to wear more bigger high heel shoes and walk on the planks of wood. Um, now let's run them out on the tail. Um, you might get burnt at the stake, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> luckily Please. we don't do that anymore, but it, it's still the same kind of pressure that you feel. So it is, uh, you know, uh, Brian, it is definitely smart to pick an area in your field of control to have influence it is not smart to say that's not my job because ultimately it is results are your job. And if you don't get results, you're going to get run out on a rail. Yeah. And that's the key here is the more uh, it's, it's another paradox, right? The, the world of outcome and results uh, is the language of sales and marketing. So in the European stance, it would be like, yeah, we do that already. But then you go over to, you know, Asia and you say their definition of an outcome and result and how they organize themselves to pursue it could be completely different. And I think that's what an example of uh, what we're seeing here and what you're saying that companies in, in your beginning intro, you said companies are not structured to do this. And I see that all the time too. And it, to me, it comes down to, since we're talking stratocution, it was, you know, picture insider nation, picture in your head, two circles, and they overlap one of those is circles is strategy and the other circle is tactics where those things overlap. We're calling stratocution on the, on the, on the strategy side. It's about, you know, let's do, let's do the right things here, the right things to pursue the outcome, the right things for the business, the right things to um, actually drive us forward and be more relevant to customers. And these are more complicated and complex today in a digital post COVID world, the, 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 the things we have to do. Uh, right. But then on the flip side of that, on the, on the tactic circle, it's okay, fine. We're going to do those things, but we got to do them well. And what does it mean to do them? Well, is it get it done and check the box or is it something else? Maybe quality or impact, et cetera. It seems to me, Scott, that that, that is a good litmus test here where we can draw some comparisons and contrast, you know, contrast between um, the existing world of doing things well and doing the right things. And, and then the post COVID digitally transformed world, what does these things mean to be in that, in those Venn diagram view? What, what's your take on that? And any examples you can share about stratocution before and stratocution after to help our listeners? Well, I, I want to, so the, the litmus test that you share is fine. I, what I want to do is I want to address the, Hey, that sounds all great in theory, but you don't know my company. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let me address that point real quickly. Here, here's, here's what I know is I know human nature and human nature applies to all companies. So yeah, some companies might be more mature, less mature, something like that. We'll get, you know, sort of Doug to comment on this, but really what co- comes down to it is this way. Part of your resistance is why well, can't go when, when I've tried to be strategic and say, well, have you thought about this and thought about that? Um, the, uh, the executives get really angry with me because they think I'm, whole, I'm slowing progress down. So I've gotten my head bit off by asking why at the wrong time. And that's the, what, what's happening there is that you're, um, you're, not, you're not listening. The, you, you, you need to get involved earlier on and, and be more proactive because 
the cycle time, it is hard to do strategy work. Uh, a lot of tactical people don't have empathy with how hard doing the strategy work is. And by the time you get the end of the strategy work, even the strategists want to just go do something. So for you to start inserting at the end of that cycle, here's a whole bunch of other things that you need to do now and wait, like wait for the, the strategy to be done. And then now say, here's my checklist for tactics. You're obviously going to be met with a lot of resistance. I mean, think about it. You're completely out of alignment with those folks. You needed to have been involved earlier on, but when, when most sales enablement people participate, they wait and they don't engage in the envisioning process. Like, hey, we could do it this way, and then that will help us execute downstream. But Scott- so that's an example of stratocution there, of, of um, um, finding a way to get more involved without being the, 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 oh, here's Doug again. Here's the say no people. Let's work around them. Uh, but Scott, you, you mentioned something about as enablement leaders, we need to be involved earlier in the envisioning part of this. Uh, I know that over the years, I've uh, been involved in a number of mergers and acquisitions, and I continue to tell uh, you know, senior leadership, you need to invite us in early, even if it means you need to put me under NDA so that I can help think about the things we need to consider beforehand. Uh, and yet, I run into the problem or I have run into the problem where I don't get invited to the table early. Uh, so I do generally get the, Hey, we just made the announcement. We're making a X billion dollar investment in such and such company and we will be integrated in one year. And I go, Holy, mm, whatever. How am I going to get that done? So let's, let's how do you get there? Let's flip it around. Um, that's knowable. Every, every company who works in a big company, any person who works in a big company, you, you should be able to read the annual report and know that acquisition, like the company that you were in, Doug, I mean, you should know. That's all it does is acquire businesses. So you should have a, a built out methodical way to, say, to rapid integration. It should, be a, it should be a business procedure that you have. You should assume that they're not, the reason that they can't in, include you is the due diligence process and the, a lot of these deals are very opportunistic. So one company, you know, falls on dead times, you, you, know, you, you, you do it, they have to move very, very rapidly to make that acquisition because that deal's getting shopped. They can't really be in a position to think through all of that, but you should know that's going to happen. And you should know that you should you should know that there's going to be a big acquisition. Um, you should know what your debt uh, debt ratio is and how much outstanding stock is, because that'll tell you whether or not your company can do a big acquisition that year or, or little ones. And then what's your playbook for big acquisitions and what's your playbook for little ones? And if you can stand up that way, at least when it happens, you can be uh, proactive and in charge of that. But it's, it's, it's a lot of it is how you sell it instead of being passive and say, I need to be a part of. Well, they don't know why you need to be a part of. And they say, so what? And also, you're going to slow us down. We can't really focus on that because we have to get this deal done quickly. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize how competitive acquisitions are, for example, and how fast um, they need to move. 
and then how much of it is a financial acquisition and how much they have to work with the board um, to justify and, and sort of do the pro forma income statement stuff. They can't really afford the luxury or have the luxury of thinking about execution. And then the other part is most CEOs, when they think about execution are, um, and maybe this is a tale for another centering story, Brian, is like the emperor has no clothes. They mm-hmm. don't understand how poorly they're set up to execute. They just yeah. don't think about it when they're trying to drive shareholder value. So Doug, yeah. part of the reason that you do acquisitions is because your company isn't executing on a growth strategy. So you're going to acquire revenue. Yeah. Um, and they move so fast. It is amazing how fast they move. Yeah, and I see that point. It's just that this is, this is why I would argue in favor of um, enablement being as high up in an organization as possible. Not, you know, I, I don't disagree that the, the idea of having an execution plan, in fact, I think this last execu- uh, acquisition we went through, we were talking about it sort of as a, it's, we think something's coming, how are we going to do this? Uh, but then it landed in it, you know, it's different. So yes, in a matter of speaking, it's small playbook, big playbook, a lot of different things. And I think that's uh, really great guidance to everybody who's in the enablement industry, especially, uh, as you say, if they're not in a company that is in a growth segment, if they're in a, uh, maybe a, a maturing or mature segment, uh, that they're going to buy revenue. So that's a good point. I think yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if the, um, let me, let me try this on and see what you guys think. So what I've run into and also what's happening here a little bit is there's this, this thing, uh, this bubble of strategy and this bubble of tactics. And even in this discussion, it's strategy happens here. It happens upstream. And then there's a, there's a gate or there's a handoff and people go execute. Um, and, and so we've talked a little bit about this. And so what, what I'm interested in from a new world perspective and what's happening in Asia uh, versus Europe is what if, what if strategy happens way upstream, like Scott's talking about, and you can, you can understand patterns based on annual reports and findings. What if you could do that? And, and, and one, I would submit that you can, and two, Marco Polo's seen it happen, right? So fine, put it over there. But there's a other piece of this of how do you execute the strategy and how do you execute the tactics that we're talking about? there is no straight jump to tactics and this, this space. So back to the beginning of the web, this podcast, this space that exists between we're going to pull the trigger on a, a acquiring a company versus now let's go do the tactics. Oftentimes gets framed out as well. We need a seat at the table. We need to be brought in earlier. We need to understand more. We need to envision together. I need to have more resources. I need to, and these are the, and I could keep going, but this, this gets, executives anxious because all we need to go we need to do and so what i'd love to be able to do is say there's three states there's there's the the strategy that that's going to happen above your pay grade but you can pattern out but there's this execute the strategy and execute the tactics that we're talking about with stratocution not just a straight jump to tactics right and and i that's what this conversation's been about to me is how i would repeat this back or or synthesize this. What do you think about that, Doug, as a as a concept of okay, fine, we're going to seed the strategic conversations for the strategy uh, and the CEO and, and the C- and asking a CEO to get us in earlier to have uh, conversations uh, on, on a merger acquisition that might be a little far fetched. 
but what can we do to execute the strategy and what's the what's the disciplines there and what are some of the concepts there versus go straight to tactics and instead of strategy versus tactics maybe it's strategy strategy tactics or something like that i don't know what do you think that's exactly how it has to happen and and i'll tell you that and i don't want to say that it's never happened i i know early on when novell acquired susa i was uh deeply involved in the the merger uh, that was taking place so we were able to put together plans we even built gap plans in terms of how we were going to equip uh, our sellers so but the thing is it's about bridging between tactically i've got to get to this or strategically here's what we're going to do it's the execution in the middle or the strategication which is the most important part of this and and therein lies how an organization gets uh, to a growth uh, opportunity that they start impacting the commercial ratio. And that's where the sales enablement practice uh, profession needs to strive toward the idea of helping um, push away the roadblocks. Somebody goes, well, I didn't think about that, but we did. We thought about it and here's what we think you should do about it. So that's, that's a really good point in terms of being pre- prepared and planned for that. Scott, your take on that? To me, it feels like this intermediate state that we're calling stratification is is critical and not well understood. And I think we're starting to scratch the surface here, but is there anything else we can do to make this concept more concrete? I know we've given some examples, but are there characteristics of how do I know? I I want to bring more um, pragmatism into this. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, what I'd like to do is challenge everybody uh, because what's fascinating is when we go into companies, how few of the employees of a company really understand how their company makes money. And understanding how your company makes money is paramount to bridging the gap between strategy and execution. And I'll give you a, 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 a case study one of um, one of our listeners, I don't, you know, maybe we'll get him to uh, share this real world story. Uh, when he was, when he took on uh, his sales enablement, sales operations, and sales strategy role at a very large uh, Fortune 500 company, uh, he had about 500 or, or so people uh, reporting to him. Uh, one of the things that he wanted to do is ask his all his employees, like, well, let's work backwards and follow the money, and let's figure out uh, opportunities where there's friction and how we make money and let's eliminate that. And that'll be what our value is. And he was horrified at how little his direct, his direct reports, his team understood how this business made money. So he got the, um, uh, instead of him being the messenger and delivering that news, he asked uh, somebody on, he talked to the CFO, had one of the financial analysts uh, come together and put together this most basic, simple brief about how this company makes money. Um, and he told uh, our hero how shocked he was at how much he had to dumb it down. Uh, and he delivered that. The people all in his department liked it so much. And here's the key point. The key point is that um, presentation that he did was so well received for about a year. That's all he did because he went from department to department to department to give 
it wasn't even a one-on-one. It was like a kindergarten version of how this business makes money. So the reason I tell this story is you're probably way too caught up in way too many tactics and you've lost sight of why your business exists in the first place. You're in the business of making money. You make money by adding value to customers. You make uh, your salespeople convince customers that you have good products and services. Focus there instead of what's the next tactics and trying to find how smart you can be. Concentrate on are we making money or not? And that's the kind of uh, conversation that resonates with executives because executives like to think of that about things as simple. They just have to have complexity because there's so many different parts of the business that need to operate. They have so many regulations that they have to deal with. They have so many financial rules that they have to comply with. They have investors that all look at, the, look at different metrics. But at the end of the day, good executives really concentrate on moving the needle or one or two things or a few things, the 80-20 rule. So my suggestion is in order to figure out how to learn to do stratocution, spend less time trying to learn about all the fancy tactics out there and spend a lot more time trying to figure out how these roll up to the one or two things that really move the needle. And that's why the commercial ratio is such a powerful concept. And it has been extremely illuminating to me to, to dig into some of those um, numbers with uh, different organizations that I'm familiar with and, and to see exactly where they sit in that space. It's, it's very eye-opening. And then you, start can, you can start drilling into their uh, 10Ks and get more details and understand where they stand on, in revenue or, or uh, assets or cash on hand, whatever it happens to be that, that might in, indicate where they uh, stand. Yeah, absolutely. And I know I've had some conversations around the commercial ratio too, and you can find out about that at commercialratio.com. So just so we avoid some inside baseball here, but go to commercialratio.com and you'll see the the glossary of terms. So Scott, your comments about how companies make money. I think it was, it was genius to put up there about um, on that site, um, what some of the terms are related to uh, that particular challenge of understanding how businesses work, uh, Two, I'll even say um, I've seen this firsthand with uh, the gaps in understanding and there's a desire for people to have seats at the table and there's a desire for folks to want to elevate their role and even, um, you know, get more of a, of a charter or remit and it's, it's a bit of a struggle for them because they don't have the language. So that, that commercialratio.com site will, will help you elevate your thinking. But more importantly, what we've been talking about here, this gap in this space that commercial ratio, in my opinion, actually illuminates that space and that gap that exists between uh, a company wanting to grow um, and the investments it's making uh, in that growth and the return on that or the impact of that sales and marketing work. So definitely check out commercialratio.com. And then I'll say um, also when you look at the uh, focus here of um, bringing together so many different perspectives and also slowing it down and hitting uh, a bit of a, a discussion on what happens in this space, I'll frame out stratocution in, in the areas of, look, somebody has to translate the business strategy into something that others can execute. That stratocution work of saying, look, I'm gonna skate to the puck. I'm going to uh, understand how this company makes money and I'm going to help 
our company get there. I'm going to be proactive. I'm not going to just wait for somebody to tell me what to do and uh, give me the answer. By that time that that happens, I'm not in the stratocution space. I'm in the tactics space. So for me to occupy the space of stratocution, I need to make some uh, assumptions around that. I need to understand how uh, this place works and I need to understand what my value prop is for my, um, my role. And then the other piece is I need to think about how this gets done with others. So I push that off the table uh, in, the, in this podcast to say, let's not talk about tactics. Uh, what I will say, though, is in order to pull off this, uh, this outcome or these outcomes or these challenges or uh, help the company grow, you have to do that with others. And we'll cover this more in other podcasts, but to be an orchestrator in that space and fill the void of the space between your company and your customers, the space between your um, individual uh, remit and, and goals that you're trying to achieve, the day-to-day activities that need to happen, the uh, idea of what's, what are the growth plans and how do you accomplish those results, the, the, what Scott talked about at the beginning with the sophistication of know-how and how deeply technical everybody is versus the simplicity of taking action, managing the individual contribution of people to drive customer experiences, and, and then doing that in a way that's among very specialized functional departments, the hyper-specialization that exists in marketing, the hyper-specialization that exists in technology, everybody has a very specific puzzle piece. Somebody needs to orchestrate that. And that's the value of orchestration. And that's what this podcast is about, is helping you embrace the the space between uh, strategy and tactics to be among others and to have this conversation in a way that says, one, this is real. Asia does exist. Two, uh, Marco Polo, uh, isn't bragging and, and he's probably not crazy. This stuff is real. And if, and three, for us to compete, uh, we should start uh, competing and um, understanding what that means to our company and our people. So with that, I'd like to thank Doug for the conversation and really, uh, really pushing us to, to get our head around and get more clear on what Stratocution is. We also provided four or five examples, but we'd love to hear from you. What examples of Stratocution do you have? What uh, challenges do you see in the space between strategy and tactics? And, and more importantly, how are you going about it as an orchestrator? So check out InsideSE.com. Also send us an email at engage at InsideSE.com. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Talk to you later. Thanks for joining us. To become an insider and amplify your journey, make sure you've subscribed to our show. If you have an idea for what Scott and Brian can cover in a future podcast or have a story to share, please email them at engage at insidese.com. You can also connect with them online by going to insidese.com, following them on Twitter, or sending them a LinkedIn request.